from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, and welcome business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM Business 111. Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined by my co-host this morning, someone who I haven't seen for a little while, our co-host Shane Jensen. It's been too long. It's been definitely been too long. And of course, we're not just going to talk about sports, business, and statistics this morning. We want you to jump in and talk to us about our favorite topic. So if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. The lines are open. We're going to take your calls. we got Actually, there's a ton of sports to talk about right now, including one of my favorite. I guess it's a sport. And, of course, you can always email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Shane, how are you doing this morning? Excellent. Great. It's great to hear. Well, you know, as I always prepare for the show, and since I'm watching sports all the time, I have lots of different sports that have caught my eye. And obviously, I knew it was going to be you and me today. Cade Nadi are away this week. Um, here are the sports I'd like, uh, I've thought about, and you pick the one to kind of lead all off right, the show. Let's do so, it. But I'll let's give you the it. list of sports. Yep. So, I've got baseball, yep. baseball, hmm. tennis, the World Series of Poker, golf, NBA, some more baseball. And basketball. So any uh, of those caught your eye this morning? I'll take uh, NFL. NFL. Well, <laughs> NFL wasn't on that list. But what I will say, what I will say is I, I heard an interesting stat here this morning. So uh, as you may know, the Pittsburgh Steelers, probably one of the, maybe the one of the best running backs who ever played. I would say Le'Veon, Le'Veon Bell. Bell. I, I, certainly the best current running back in the league, so, I think. Yeah. And he has not currently signed. Yep. And one of the things I heard, which was an amazing statistic, which is, Obviously, in the NFL, all that matters is guaranteed money. They could sign you to a $5 billion contract and cut you tomorrow, so that doesn't matter. No running back in the NFL is in the top 75 players in the league in terms of guaranteed money. Yeah. So the discussion about Le'Veon Bell was, look, from a statistical point of view, he's a great player. But uh, we were just talking about cyclists getting injured. I mean, Le'Veon Bell could be here today, gone tomorrow, and maybe something you could talk about for our sports fans. We always talk about this, like, what do you think is the variation in running backs? We both agree Le'Veon Bell's the best, but how much better is he than the 10th best running back? And so that's always the issue with the NFL and running backs. It's not just, you know, this guy might get injured, but, you know, obviously you'd rather have Tom Brady than the 10th best quarterback, and by a lot. But how much better would you rather have Le'Veon Bell than the 10th best running back? And I think it's a great question because, you know, I I think what what I'm sort of seeing out there is that teams do sort of essentially regard running backs as kind of, you know, replaceable. That, like, it's more important. I mean, you need, you know, Le'Veon Bell clearly has an immense talent more than your average running back, but... You know, I mean, New England, for example, has been able to plug whatever running back X into their system and and, and achieve success with that, and has prioritized elsewhere. Right? You could. The thing is, though, that the, you know, and, and that that's the line of reasoning that kind of explains the data that you just pointed out. That running backs typically seem to be sort of like you know they're 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 at least paid like they're replaceable. Yeah, and well, the way I always view it is maybe maybe correct me if obviously yeah. we both care about the NFL and follow the NFL very closely. How much difference is there? You would agree, a running back that averages 4.8 yards a carry, 
and four yards a carry is a huge difference in the massive, NFL. As a massive. matter of fact, one might be, four might even be above average. But let's say four is average, 4.8 might be two standard deviations yeah. above average. I don't know about you, but I don't know, second and 5.2 versus second and six. I don't know. Is that worth $20 million? You know, I, I know it's not exactly the right way to think about it. I'm yeah. oversimplifying it. But, you know, at the end of the day, how much more? Now, now that we have the hybrid running backs yeah. who catch the ball out of the backfield, that's a different equation. And, and but in then, terms of pure running, there just isn't that yeah, much variation. But but them as part of the passing game kind of brings up my conundrum. Because, you know, I, I could buy this whole line of reasoning that running backs are essentially replaceable. Why would you devote too much money to that? something that you can kind of get out there, you know, anyway? Why doesn't the same logic apply for wide receivers? Like, is there such a skew in that talent distribution? Right. Because wide receivers get paid. They get paid. Right. And why can't we make that same logical argument that there's a lot of wide receivers? It's, it's more important to have somebody that – I mean, maybe it's maybe it's the case. Maybe this is the solution, is that, you know, it's all about being able to play in a system, and it's harder for a wide receiver to play to, – to, you know – the ability to adapt to a particular system, like a complicated system like New England runs or whatever, that is harder to do um, if you're a wide receiver than if you're a running back. I think what we, well, I think what other people would also say about the NFL, and especially about really, really star wide receivers, like a you know a Bryant or a, you know a, you know Julio a, Jones, Julio Jones, something like that, or you know we're going to find out something. He's not a star, but we're going to find out something interesting. About in my my team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this year, and this oh, is my com- yeah. let me make my comment. So they signed Deshaun Jackson. Now Deshaun Jackson's he's great, he's fine, but the guy can still run a four three. And so when you have a wide receiver that can run a four three, someone's going to have to cover him. Maybe two guys are going to have to cover him, and that leaves open the middle of the field. And we know the best Buck wide receiver is actually Mike Evans, oh, who's basically been playing by himself. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think he's he's head and shoulders in terms of the number of targets that that guy gets. He's head and shoulders above anybody else. It's clear on paper that that guy is but the my, only yeah, wide receiver. So my point is, my point is yep. trying to address your question. The value of a wide receiver, a top top wide receiver, can actually have yeah. you know, let's call it social value to the yeah. rest of the team because he makes the rest of the team more valuable. Now, one could argue Le'Veon Bell because of his ability to catch the ball mm-hmm. in the backfield. That's but right. Then, but then let's talk about, let's, since we're statisticians here, let's talk about distributions. Would you rather have the best running back at, let's say, $40 million guaranteed, or would you rather have the 20th and the 25th wide receivers who you could get at the same money. I mean, if Le'Veon Bell, if the reason you're getting him is to catch the ball, get someone who's paid to catch yeah, the ball. That's right. And, and, I mean, the answer to your question really is in the details of how that distribution drops, that distribution exactly. of talent drops off. You know, like, you know, is the if the 20th best wide receiver is really kind of competitive with the 10th best wide receiver, then, you may, you know, you don't necessarily overpay for that. But if there's a real drop off, if there's sort of like ten elite wide receivers out there, and it really behooves you to have one of them, then you'll pay top dollar for it. And that's, I mean, clearly we already know that for quarterbacks, right? That like having an elite quarterback is essentially invaluable, right? 
right. in the NFL. Well, as we've seen teams make huge trades. So this is Wharton Moneyball. I'm Eric Brado. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Um, if you want to join the conversation and talk about, as you saw already, Shane already picked the topic yeah, that wasn't on my list. You, the listeners, can do the same. Thank That's, you. Thank you for humoring me, by the way. Nah. We, can, we can get to sports that are currently going on I if you'd just, like. When you said NFL, I was just looking back at my list and making say, wait a second, I don't remember saying the NFL, but that's rare for me because I love the NFL. Uh, you can call us and join the conversation at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. And I, I should have mentioned when I opened the show, you can also follow us on Twitter. I actually tweet quite a bit from our account. It's at W Moneyball. So why don't you actually pick one of the topics that I talked about? You know, well, let's uh, g- give me give me your favorite of the baseball topics you got. Okay, so I'm going to give you the stats of a guy. Okay, I'm not going to tell you who it is, and you tell me. Um, what you think about this person as a player. I understand stats don't say everything, but we're money ball, so you know, we summarize players by interesting measures and stats. I think you can boil a player down to basically a few numbers. Yeah, well, we're going to find out. So this is a, a baseball player who's got a batting average of two ninety four. Mm-hmm. So actually, as you know, well above average, but not, you know, he's not going to the Hall of Fame, but well I'm above a, average. I'm, I'm already a fan of this player. Okay. On base percentage of three eighty five. Yeah, yeah. So that's, actu- that's what you like to see. No, that that's actually quite high. Yeah, uh, a slugging percentage of five hundred. So an ops of around nine hundred. All right. So not fantastic. Yeah, yeah okay. no, no. I mean, come on. And come if on. you project you put that guy into your lineup, right? And this guy has not um, batted six hundred times this season, obviously. But if you projected his numbers to six hundred times, this person would have twenty seven home runs and one hundred and seventeen RBIs. Yeah, that's a good guy. You want you want that guy, right? That's Tim Tebow. So, <laughs> well, okay. All right. So I now, thought this was against major league pitching. Hold on a sec. Yeah, wait, Put, uh, slam right. the brakes on here. All right. Well, all right. So that's what I. Well, you can see why it was the top of my list. So as everybody knows, I hope our fans here at Morton Moneyball know. Obviously, Tim Tebow was a star yeah. quarterback in college. Played some in the NFL. Had some success. Um, he's 29 years old. Um, he's playing now in high A ball for the okay. Mets. He got rid, he got went from low A ball to high A ball, but. When I tell you those stats, I understand what uh, what he's pitching against, but what do you think, is there anything for those people that are Tim Tebow fans, just looking at his numbers, that would suggest, you know, he's got some trajectory, he's got some possibility, no, including, by the way, he had a 12-game hitting streak recently, which was snapped, but just, just as an aside. Right. Well, I, I mean, obviously the fact that he's moving up, right? I mean, the, the, you know, the clearly, the, I mean, I, I'm going to trust the Mets organization to not be moving this guy up to sell tickets, but they actually think he's a valuable baseball piece. So the fact that he's accelerated from low A to high A is already information. I think that's a more valuable piece of data than the the stat line that you just gave me because, you know, the reason I was like, oh, yeah, you know, 294 batting average, 385 on base percentage, it's because I know the distribution of those things in the major, major leagues, leagues. And right. I'm like, well, that is, you know, that is certainly way above average in the, in way the major above leagues. Average. I don't know that distribution for high A. And I would guess that... It is less impressive in high age. Well, let me ask you a question about that. Actually, you're the perfect person to ask. So would you agree the following? And this is maybe an interesting statistical question for our audience here. Um, Would you agree... The pitching in the major leagues, on average, in general, is better than the pitching in high A. I would agree with uh, okay, that. Okay, you'd agree with that. Would you also agree that the hitters in the major leagues are better than the hitters in mm-hmm. high A? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So now we've got the pitchers are better and the hitters are better. So which one of those two forces? Like maybe Tebow is very good for you know against the pitching he's facing. How do we project then 
somebody who's hitting 300 basically with almost a 400 on base percentage. How do you project them to the major league level if they're not? I mean, obviously, there may be some people in high yeah. A that are going to be in the major leagues. Do you do that? Do you basically say, let's take our A graded prospects from single A and let's see how he's doing against those pitchers? Forget how he's pitching versus Eric Bradlow and yeah, Shane yeah, Jensen. Yeah. Is there any way, like, Forget yeah, what I mean, scouts you could, see. You, How would you project? You could certainly, I mean, I, yeah, you could basically, I mean, I, I I can think of two approaches. The one that you just suggested is a good one. You could sort of like basically subset his data, sort of see what is, what is his batting average uh, against pitchers in, in high A that we kind of uh, similarly project are going to be, you know, make it to the major leagues or, or are better, like just sort of take his, his performance against sort of the top or just sort of look at how much his performance varies depending on like the type of pitcher that he's facing. So that is certainly something you can do. Or you can kind of take a, a different approach, which is it could ignore the particular pitchers he's faced. Assume that he sort of has faced the same kind of mixture of good and bad pitchers that most players through Triple A of Triple A have ever faced, and then just sort of match, you know, try and go back in history and sort of say like, you know, what what's this what's the pool of players that he's looked most similar to in Triple A, and then single A, single single A, A, sorry, in single A, high A, and and um, and then. You know, then you've got sort of once you have that pool of similar players, then you can just sort of look at what those similar players did. How many of those made it to the major? So that's leagues. obviously a very good me- message yeah. and method for all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, which is what you're telling is let's take a pool of comparable players, which you can do. You can match them on lots of metrics, yep. even a simple matching method. Just yep. look at players that have a similar batting average, OPS, etc. And then project them going forward. Now, of course, age is a slight issue here because there aren't a lot of twenty-nine-year-olds typically. That, that's true. There's, there. uh, there's, I mean, that that's what kind of to a certain extent you could always counter argue that somebody like Tebow is going to be difficult to match. But what about the other argument? So I, there are two other arguments I wanted to give you. One is how about the fact that since he hasn't been playing baseball for that long, maybe he's yet to scratch his upside. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's going to be much better because you know what? He's like a guy that's had like 300 at-bats. 300 at-bats. A lot of those guys have him at age 18. So yeah. maybe, and second. I can't wait till he, he tries hockey out after this. Yeah, there we go. But he was also, he hit, I mean, is there anything you could take of at low A, he hit 230, at high A, he's hitting 294. Is there anything to say non-stationarity is going on, like his trajectory seems to be going up? Or I mean, let's. Pre- I, I mean, not, not without knowing how often that happens, how often players hit, you, you know, that you know play, that, that happens where a player is hitting like lower in, in, in low A and then... I mean, that could be very common. I don't know. But so far, we would agree that at least there seems to be a trajectory that yeah. suggests something good. So the other topic, there's lots of topics in baseball I want to talk about. The next one is, of course, one of my favorite situations. Something I talked we talked about last week on the show was, of course, Aaron Judge. Huh. Now, we last week we talked about, we don't have to rehash That guy's it. got some upside. He has some upside. We talked about the uh, home run hitting contest. And But I, I want to ask a stat of you and ask you whether it's concerning at all. So, you know, there's always the what's called the slump. After the home run Man, derby. Man, everybody's predict- been predicting regression to the mean on this guy for All right. months. Well, well, let me just tell you. So I did. A, you could do a little bit of math on this. So um, it's for two games before the All-Star break and six games since the All-Star break, he has zero home runs. Now, I started to wonder. So that's eight straight mm-hmm. games. Yeah. So now I started to wonder, like, how often is that? Is that going to happen to a player? So now here's the way. Tell me if the following math for our listeners out there is a is a reasonably correct. So let's imagine he's truly a fifty home run guy, which mm-hmm. is the pace he was on. 
Okay? Then you take, so let's say a 50 home run guy hits a home run one out of roughly every three games. Yeah. So let's take one minus that probability, which says two-thirds of the time he does not hit a home a home run in a game. So right. far, yeah, I think, yeah, so yeah, far, yeah. so good. Yeah. Now the question is whether taking two-thirds times two-thirds times two-thirds times two-thirds eight straight times, you know, two-thirds to the eighth, is that a reasonable way to think about somebody who's truly a 50 home run guy what's the probability he would have eight straight games without any single home yeah. run for a small number of games like that like eight yeah i think that calculations not bad. I, I don't see a real problem with that. Okay. Just, uh, by the way, I mean, technically, there's dependency because you're constrained. The, the sum is it, – it's not a real binomial kind of calculation, right? So tell our listeners what exactly you mean by that. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, you can't just – I mean, that, that calculation basically treats each game as independent. And that's, you know, I mean, if, if you were just kind of running this forward without a, any constraints on it, that would be, I think, a pretty reasonable assumption. But you you were kind of constraining this entire calculation to the fact that he has to get to about fifty by the end of the season, right? Well, that's like, correct. So you're you're it's it's uh it's no longer that that constraint induces sort of a dependency on the games that wasn't there wouldn't otherwise be there. But I mean that the amount of dependency and I mean that's a dependency induced on all oh, 162 games. Focusing in only eight, you're not. They're, they're, you, that's probably not going to be a, a huge factor in the calculation. So I think you could totally run with that two thirds to the eighth. So, so this is Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen. And this morning, we're talking about all kinds of sports statistics and business. Uh, we're here on Sirius XM 111, uh, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You could also email us at businessradio at siriusxm.com. So um, any concerns that, you know, Judge well, – also, by the way, I should also comment, besides the no home run since the All-Star break, up until last night's game, he was 1 for 21. Now, he did go 2 for, I think, 2 for 4. I assume something. this is kind of th – this is the biggest slump that he has been in so it's far the this biggest, season. Like, it's yeah. the biggest slump he has been in this season. Um, any concerns about that? Not really. Not really. I mean, I mean, I, 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 if may – I mean – I, I have been, like everybody else, expecting him to regress a little bit because, you know, I mean, if he doesn't regress, he's like a generational talent, right? And the whole point of a generational talent is they do not come along very often. So I would expect him to not necessarily be a 50 home run hitter as a rookie. So I guess, you know, maybe we're seeing some amount of regression to the mean here, or at least, you know, the fact that he's human. Um, but if I was a Yankees fan, I'd still take, I mean, he's clearly an excellent baseball player just you know you know calm yourselves with that yeah let me say the the good news i think the yankees maybe you, uh, we could look it up while i'm speaking here but i think the yankees have played roughly let's call it in the low 90s of games right now so uh, the way i would also think about it is if we said he's going to hit a home run roughly one out of every three games if there's 70 games left and he hits one home run out of every three games yeah he still gets to 50 by the way yeah he, by the way his numbers at the break were higher than a 50 pace he's at 30 home runs now so uh, by the way i'll ask That's you ridiculous, since i asked Adi next week say. is the guy going to get to 50 you think he gets to 50? I think he still gets to 50, yeah. I think he still gets to 50. Yeah, um, by the way, I had my memory was correct. My brain is still good. The Yankees are 48 and 44, so they've got exactly 70 games left. Nice, nice. So, yeah. you know, if he's a I th 50 I think home, he still gets to 50. You think he gets to yeah, 50? Yeah, I, I mean, again, there's always that, like, random, you know, you, he could get injured. He could, you know, maybe even if he misses, like, a couple weeks, then all of a sudden maybe I, I'm not so confident. But assuming he stays healthy, assuming he plays uh, – 
very substantial portion of that remaining 70 games, I do think he gets to, uh, gets to 50 home runs. And thanks to Zach for that information at 48 and 44. Zach, yeah. thank you very much. We've got a crack staff here in the back that's helping us and actually is listening to the show and actually providing us stats as we ask for them. So thank you very much. Um, let me ask you just two related questions. At what point do you think it becomes a mental challenge? Like, Let's imagine it's now four. Let's imagine it's next week. Yeah. Okay. And he still hasn't hit a home run. So let's imagine he's now played 15 consecutive games. So let me ask you two related questions. When do we start to believe that maybe he's not a true 50 home run guy? Forget that it's 15 in a row, just that his base rate yep. has changed. Yep. Or secondly, how many consecutive games does it have to be before, you know, they say the guy is pressing and you know what? Maybe he's lowering his chances of hitting a home run because he's trying too hard. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think uh, the former case, I think you have to, uh, I mean, I'd have to see more than just a few more games to, to revise my estimate that he's gonna not going to get to 50 home runs. The latter one where, you know, like that this is an indication that he is, you know, psychologically something has sort of changed and... You know he he needs you know he needs a break or something like that. Yeah, I mean probably you know they be- will. They'll give him a couple of days off, or they'll move him around the order. They'll protect him in some. I mean, you know, this is as far as I can tell, almost the entire point of managers in the game is to sort of like make their players feel comfortable enough to play to their utmost. And so, yeah, you know, it would be a great stat to look at, which it would not be a trivial one. You know, if we had a five hundred army people, we could probably find out this stat. So let's take everybody who has hit fifty home runs in a season. Okay. Mm-hmm. And let's look at all, not just the people, let's look at all 50 home run seasons and let's look at the longest streak someone has had and not hit a home run in a 50 home yeah. run season. And let's that see how really rare it is. You yeah. agree. So maybe, yeah. could you, so you and I both agree it's, it's interesting. Could you just, just for our listeners here on Morton Moneyball, could you say why this hypothetical or this analysis one could do is interesting to you? Like, what did I do just in my own mind that constructed an interesting counterfactual or, or well, thought I, experiment? I mean, it, it, well, I, and I think it's sort of, you know, uh, it, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about with Tebow and, and, and the power of matching. So, I mean, if you really want to kind of project um, uh, Aaron Judge as as a fifty home run hitter, what you should look at is how similar does he look to the other people that have actually accomplished this feat, the, the other fifty home run hitters throughout history. Um, and we're, we we have a particular thing that we're trying to compare on, which is this sort of length of streak without a home run, right? So. If he still looks, if you compare him to this pool of all 50 home run hitters and he still does not look unusual in terms of like that length of his streak without hitting a home run, then you're like, well, that that is additional evidence that he he could belong into this set. I'm, Whereas if it's twice as long as the well, next that's what I was going to ask you. Suppose I told you, well, before you finish that sentence, suppose I told you, and I don't know the answer, suppose I told you, though, that this was the longest streak ever for someone that, by the way, he, he's not at 50, but let's imagine no one has ever had a streak of eight games. I'm sure they have, but let's imagine no one's ever had a streak of eight games that hit 50 in yeah. a season. Then, then How much this... would you downweight? And, and let's imagine, let me even ask, let me add one more piece of information, which neither of us know. Let's imagine baseball history, there's been 100 seasons, 100 player yeah. seasons, which may not be a horrible estimate, yeah. where guys have hit 50 home runs. It might be less, but let's imagine it's 100. And no one ever in those 100 seasons had eight consecutive games without a home run that made it to 50. 
What would you now? Well, like, how I, much now, now would now you I'd, now now I'd start looking with at Aaron Judge with some skepticism. But what I really want is not just that it's never happened before. I'd want the distribution across those hundred seasons. I'd want the distribution of the longest streak that they went without a home run. And if it's sort of like you know, if it's normally distributed centered at like four or something like that, then eight looks really unusual. Really unusual. Whereas but we agree, it's not whereas, a four. Whereas if it's Whereas if there's still fives and sixes and sevens, there's never been an eight, but there's been a lot of sevens. Then all of a sudden, I'm like, well, okay, that that's then all of a sudden, Aaron Judge doesn't look that exceptional, yes, or unusual in the sense that oh, well, then now we can rule him out as a fifty home run. Hitter. You know, you see, this is what we do on Morton Moneyball. You just made me think of something, Shane, which is if you think about the two discussions we've had already this morning here on Morton Moneyball. And again, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight sixty six. And again, this is Eric Bradlow. I'm professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my colleague Shane Jensen. Think about the two conversations we had, and I'm going to link them together. What you just talked about, remember what you were talking about when we were talking about Le'Veon Bell. You were saying how extreme on the distribution is he compared to other running backs? And now let's look at what you just said when you were talking about Aaron Judge. Let's look at how extreme eight is compared to the distribution of other streaks or non-streaks, if you'd like, of similar players. And this is what we as statisticians do all the time is we, you know, we observe things, but you need what's called a null distribution of saying, so yeah. how rare is this thing? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you. It, it, I, I think it's with all these things. I, and I mean, I, I think to a certain extent, the popular media is almost incentivized away from doing this kind of historical comparative because, because you know, I mean, if you want to sell papers or whatever the modern version of that is, um, sell ads on the Internet, you want to have people excited. You want people you, – you want, you want basically whatever's going on in sports right now to be exceptional. Right. You want Aaron Judge to be exceptional. We've never seen something like this before. You know, you want Tom Brady to be exceptional. By the way, he is. But, you know, you want all the everything that's going on right now to be exceptional. But, you know, in in, in actual fact, you know, almost by construction, not everything going on right now can be exceptional or else the, the, the word is meaningless. And so, you know, as statisticians, we're always kind of these, this, this kind of skeptical sort of, you know, pr- protector of, of, of skepticism. And so we look back and we're like, well, actually, if you look at the historical record, you know, this is not that exceptional. And when it is exceptional, then all of a sudden we get excited, too. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that would also be useful for you to lay out for our fans here on Wharton Moneyball would be when you think exceptional, Mm. like a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't know, one in a hundred, you know, Mm -hmm. or, you know, in our field, p-value of 0.05. Yeah. You know what? Those types of events happen all the time. All the time. Right. All the time. I mean, observe a thousand events. You're going to observe a bunch of them, you know, a thousand times 0.05. You're going to observe these types of events, even if they're not that truly exceptional. So what to you would be exceptional? Like, is it three standard deviations, which is more like, you know, one in a thousand? Is it four standard deviations? Like, how far away does something have to be before it kind of catches your eye in sports? This is our opening segment every week as not being something that, you know what? I watch a lot of sports. We talk about thousands of things here in Wharton Moneyball. Let's talk about three and four sigma standard deviation yeah. out events. What? How rare I mean, I, does something have to be for you? I, I, I'm a real sports fan. I get excited about a lot of sports. I think. I mean, honestly, I even think that one in a hundred is. I mean, maybe I wouldn't use the word exceptional, but I get excited about one in a hundred events. I mean, that I, I think that's. You know, I'm, I'm an excitable guy, as it turns out, but. Yeah, 
if we were, if if you were kind of asking for sort of a percentile or some kind of, you know, what, what, I, how I would sort of define exceptional, maybe one in a thousand. One in a thousand sounds nice. Nice round number. Hmm. So, yeah. well, another way to calibrate it is. I mean, the I mean, following. but that, well, that really constrains ca- you, right? I mean, because I mean, have there even been a thousand quarterbacks? You know, like well, uh, that's you the know. thing I was going to ask you. So, you know, in some sense, when you take a probability, what I always say is. Problems in life happen not because probabilities happen, but because you have a big sample size multiplying that probability. You know, if, if it's something's a one in a thousand event, but only three of these events happen a year, yeah. you and I are probably going to be dead when that next event happens. But if there's 10,000 of those events that happen yeah. and they happen with one in a thousand, you know what? You and I are going to see some of them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think, you know, that's another thing. So, uh, by the way, uh, Zach, who's doing crack research in the back, uh, he just said to us, I just looked at other 50 home run seasons. That's amazing. He did that in real time. And all of them, all of them show no home run slumps of a good six, seven, eight, nine games at least once or twice. Wow. Uh, All right. Well, there you go. So uh, Aaron Judge is not exceptional relative to his peers. Well, in the bad, in the bad, in the way. bad way. I know. That's I'm, right. I'm happy That's right. about that as a Yankee fan. He still, he still potentially belongs in the 50 home run club. Well, we'll we'll see how that works out. And so maybe the the last topic I wanted to talk about in our first half hour, and we're we're very fortunate that we have guests coming up in the next half hour. We have Dan Rosenhack, who's a data and sports editor for the Economist. Uh, we actually have Louis Passfield, who's here, who's talked to us about. Uh, cycling many times so he'll be on in the nine o'clock hour so it's fantastic um the last thing i want to talk about you mentioned something this is how my strange brain works um you mentioned this guy who i can't stand in new england his name is tom brady <laughs> and you agree that um haters had, gonna hate yep haters gonna hate i'm a hater but of course his two super bowl losses are to my giants so i can live uh-huh. with this a little bit here um but again uh, actually what we'll save this for the nine o'clock hour but here's something i want you to nine thirty hour there's something i want you to think about and I want all of our fans to think about, he's 5-2 and two in the Super Bowl. Can't take that away from him. You play actually a game 60 minutes, not 50, not 40. The Falcons were leading. It doesn't matter. Yeah. At the end of the game, they won the game. Matter of fact, if they had, if people could say, oh, well, look, if the, you want to cut the Giants Super Bowls back five minutes, he won both those yeah. games. So yeah, let's, not, right. you know, let's, let's not, he's 5-2. and two. Yeah. But had he lost, don't answer now, but think about it for the next hour. Had he lost that Super Bowl, he would have been 4-3. and three. Had Federer lost the Australian Open to Nadal, which he was down a break in the fifth, and he had never come back against Nadal, it would have been 17 majors for Federer, 16 for Nadal. Now, all of a sudden, maybe he's not the greatest ever. Maybe Brady at 4-3 and three in the Super Bowl is, everybody would say, well, we could debate this. We'll debate this at 9.30. Would you rather be Terry Bradshaw and Joe Montana 4-0 and in the Super Bowl, or would you rather be Tom Brady at 4-3? and three? We both know we take 5-2 and two over 4-0 every day of the week. Yeah. But 4-3 and three over 4-0, and oh, we could have a debate. Don't answer. Okay. We're gonna, uh, Shane okay. Jensen and I are going to talk about this in the 9.30 hour. Uh, Zach Drapkin, I believe, uh, has been our... Uh, giving us our crack stats for the first half hour. So thanks, Zach, for that. Um, We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with some guests. So please join us here on Wharton Moneyball right after the break. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, and thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, for that music, which I have no idea what it is, but it is getting me in the mood to talk about sports statistics and business, so mission accomplished, Danielle. Thank you very much. And, of course, we're here on Wharton Moneyball, here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We're here talking about, again, sports statistics and business. Uh, and for those that are getting excited and want to say, I want to hear more about Tom Brady, Five and two versus four and three and all and Roger no, we'll Federer. We'll We're going to get there in the we'll nine thirty hour. But uh, thanks to Patty Hall and thanks to uh, all the SiriusXM staff. We're really honored to have the following guests on our show: uh, Dan Rosenheck, uh, data and sports editor at the Economist. Uh, he actually is editor of the Economist data team, which I knew th- I knew the Economist must have a data team, but uh, I didn't know that they wrote about sports and other topics like that. Uh, his specialty include topics in like accounting, sovereign debt, and law. Um, he also edits the Game Theory Sports blog and something that I really care about, maybe even more than sports. He covers wine for Intelligent Life. And matter of fact, when you combine wine and sports, oh, there's, I think a there's magical a magical combination. It's a magical combination. There's an interaction yeah. effect no. there. So, Dan, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host, Shane Jensen. Thank you for having me. Great. It's great to have you on. So, first thing, um, could you tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball a little bit about your background? Because you obviously write on a large variety of topics and kind of how you got interested in general into the field of quantitative analysis and data science? Uh, Sure. So uh, my main background professionally is just as a a journalist all the way through. Uh, The Economist tends to rotate people around from one role to another to challenge you and keep you fresh. So I've been a foreign correspondent. I've been a business writer, a bunch of different things. Um, But uh, just in my sort of personal life, I've always uh, originally uh, was a crazy baseball fan, and uh, uh, my love for uh, sports in general and that sport in particular wasn't necessarily matched by my uh, athletic ability, which was uh, limited to say the least, unfortunately. So uh, from the time I was a little kid, I just uh, decided that I was going to memorize everything about um, baseball statistics. And then I'm sort of of the age of uh, when the money, mo- the, the generation when the money ball. Uh, the analytics revolution was all happening, so I started uh, doing my own forecasting, I guess, in the in the mid-2000s and uh, sort of developed one of the uh, first precursors to the common wins above replacement models now, uh, and that sort of put me on this track, and quantitatively, I'm really largely... Uh, self-taught, although I've got a bit of uh, a, a bit of academic work, but um, I mainly do uh, baseball projections and baseball uh, research, uh, which I, I present at the MIT Sloan Analytics Conference uh, a bunch of years. Um, and my projections, I've submitted them to online competitions at Fangraphs, and they've done very well. And then, um, and that was really the background that got me started uh, uh, at the Economist. Like many, many people in data journalism, including Nate Silver, got their start in sports, and then moved towards politics and economics. And that's sort of been uh, been my path as well. Well, it's interesting. Let me just—I I got so many questions to ask you, but let me start with the first one. Is you used a topic of a—I'll call it a job description that I've never heard before, which is data journalism. So, is that something that you know has become a—you know—I don't know if Firms of companies like the or uh, magazines or articles like the Economist actually use that term. But if I applied for a job, could I, is there a data journalist now title and job that's now part of the profession? There is 
definitely a data journalist title and role that is now part of the profession uh, and somewhere between many and most of the leading print media organizations now would have at least one and often a whole team of people uh, who essentially bridge, seek to bridge the gap between quantitative academic social science and journalism and uh, do use the methods that essentially professors have been using for years, but uh, in real time on the news of the day or the week uh, and written for a mainstream audience. And what you lose in peer review, you gain in readability and speed and, uh, and relevance. Uh, I mean, if you look at the, the landscape of this, um, 538 is an entire website dedicated to, to data journalism. The New York Times has its uh, upshot vertical. Uh, and, yeah, we have we have an entire team of um, – it's eight uh, – I think it's seven, maybe seven now uh, full-time data journalists uh, and then a corresponding team of um, visualizers who bring our statistical research to life. You know, I'll just sort of say, like, uh, following up on that, uh, that – I think, you know, in sports especially, so much of, you know, the cutting edge of what is going on as far as actual research, even methodological development, is not actually happening within the academic community anymore. It's happening out there, you know, in enterprises like 538s clearly is, is one example. But there's a lot of, I guess we would call them data journalists out there working on on the kind of cutting edge problems that are in sports statistics. And very little of that is information is being essentially like peer reviewed or, or or published in in kind of traditional journals, but that that's not the way the field is sort of the field is advancing fast, um, almost uh, because that it's 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 not being kind of slowed down by the journal process. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it would be fair to describe it as crowdsourced, and that's mm-hmm. I mean, and that's yep. just the, that's the power of the internet. I, I mean, you know, I uh, what what turned me from uh, a kid collecting baseball cards to a guy uh, modeling and predicting was the moment that I could just log onto my computer and download every number ever. And then subsequent, and now uh, that's been paired with the development of ever more uh, granular data, whether it's um, StatCast for baseball or um, uh, the you know, the uh, the stroke le- shot level data in in, in golf or uh, Sport Vision X Y in basketball or, or or whatever, and in in many cases this information in, information that is far more uh, granular and specific and sort of tied to the actual physical processes underlying sports, which um, you know a, a, a one generation ago even even uh, professional teams could only dream of. Um, are now just available to anyone with the click of a mouse. So you have, yes, uh, there are, I mean, there's a journal of quantitative sports research, and there's lots of professors that do uh, wonderful work, but they're just outnumbered by the uh, massive humanity that now has access to data online and can play with it. So this is Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our guest this morning, Dan Rosenheck, data and sports editor of The Economist, and this is Eric Brother. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Dan, or if you have a question about his path becoming a data journalist and being editor of The Economist data team, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So Dan, before we get to 
you know, kind of what I'll call one of the major sporting events happening this week, which is obviously the Open Championship, which I'd like to talk to you about in detail. I do have one more question just about kind of the team you lead. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wanted to be, if one of our listeners said today, wow, I'd love to be a data journalist today. Do they need to know, like, do the data journalists that work on your team, like when I say the words machine learning, regression, probabilistic methods, do these data journalists, besides we hope they can write, do they also need to have what we would call at least a master's level statistical toolkit in kind of current statistical methods? Or or, or I guess to, to answer that in the, the flip side of that question, how how many members of your team and, and teams like yours are self-taught in the same way you described yourself? Uh, yeah, so it's a mix. Um, both, there's both a mix in terms of, peop- of how people learned what they learned and then uh, the, the magnitude of their technical skills. Uh, clearly, you know, and, and I do, I do uh, recruiting for us, so I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with what's out there. Uh, it's a pretty rare combination of skills to find somebody who, uh, I mean, I always say, ideally, you're really looking for four things in the same person. You want, um, uh, hopefully, um, computer science and, uh, yeah, data science machine learning skills that would be um, uh, commensurate with uh, a job in Silicon Valley. Wow, um, that's already a good start. That's I mean, a good start. This, yeah. is, this is ideal. This is a dream yeah. candidate. Yeah. You would want totally differently um, uh, academic quantitative social science uh, methods, which are, uh, I think, I mean, th- there's a big difference between, um, uh, I guess, roughly speaking, between uh, most of uh, academic research, which tends, which tends to be sort of, uh, I guess, focused on interpretation, explaining what happens in the world and why, and then the data science world, which tends to be more black box machine learning. We don't care how it works. We just want to know what's going to happen. G- 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 give me the best forecast you can. And, uh, and those worlds are actually quite, uh, quite separate. So just finding somebody who can both... Um, uh, both has sort of a, an academic curiosity. Okay, what really makes the world work uh, work this way, and uh, a, a data scientist's um, you know de- uh, desire for accurate prediction itself is hard to find. And then combining that with somebody who is um, uh, you know well acquainted with um, current with current events and geopolitics, um, ideally with both uh, on both. Uh, the political side and the economic side, uh, and then, uh, I mean, if the, if, if the economist has distinguished itself for anything, probably hopefully above all, it's our writing, somebody who's just a really clean uh, clean and compelling and gripping writer, yeah, combining all those things is, uh, in, in a single individual, is, is, is a big ask. And certainly, if any of your listeners think they have all four of those skills, please tell them to contact me. Yeah, and by the way, that's again, that's Dan Rosenheck, the data and sports editor. Because by the way, I, and by the way, it's uh, he also is on Twitter at, at Dan Rosenheck. By the way, I was about to say, if you have those skills, um, you can email Eric Bradlow or Shane Jensen at yeah, Warden. We're looking yeah. for professors with those skills too. So That's we'll true. bid against the economists for those individuals. Those would be great. So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll have to compete. Well, 
they can have both jobs. They can work for the Wharton School, and they can write, hopefully, on the side for The Economist. Maybe the other way around. Ah, there we go. There we go. So let's let's move on, Dan, if you don't mind, to the, uh, the Open Championship that's happening. And uh, for those people that don't know, obviously, we call it the British Open here in the U.S., but every, all around the world instead, they call it the Open Championship. Um, last year's winner was uh, Heinrich Stenson. Uh, Runner-up was Phil Mickelson. By the way, one of the great duels, you know, kind of it... Uh, if you'd like it, recreated in some sense the duel in the sun between Nicholas and Watson. This was one of the great duels. I mean, I think, if I don't remember exactly, but Nicholson might have shot 64, 65 on the last day and still lost by two strokes. Yeah. It was one of the great duels ever in sports. How are you thinking about the Open Championship that's about to start? Uh, well, the first thing uh, that I find striking is that the field is really wide open, and this is both. Let's just so just uh, for uh, as background for your uh, your audience, uh, the Economist has developed a uh, prediction system for men's major golf tournaments, which we call Eagle, the Economist Advantage in Golf Likelihood Estimator, um, which uh, which produces live uh, win probability forecasts at every point in a tournament, and if you just go to Economist.com/eagle. You can read all the all the nuts and bolts uh, about how the methodology works. Um, and one thing that both Eagle and the betting markets um, are observing about this year's field is that it is unusually uh, wide open. Although uh, golf is far, far, far different from uh, other individual sports like tennis, in that uh, you know, in in tennis, the uh, the best player can have a 30, 40, even 50 percent chance to win going in. Certainly, Rafael Nadal in the French Open. I'd have to check betting odds, but he might be given more than fifty percent. He is you know, given. He is given more than fifty percent, and certainly the top four players are given about ninety percent. So, right. Dan, maybe also for our audience, you you say it's very wide open. Can you give us uh, our audience a sense of if you took like the top five or even ten players in the world in golf, yeah. how much probability in total even would that set have? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, and, and this this is this is my starting point for I think what makes this year's tournament a little interesting. Uh, in general, the favorite will be sort of in the 10% range, a really strong favorite. Peak Tiger Woods, um, you know, would be north of 15. Um, I, you know, I, I can check if we ever had him above 20, but that's very unusual. Normally, your favorites are sort of in maybe the 11 12% um range and then the and it doesn't go down that fast from there you'll typically see maybe an 11 followed by an eight and a half followed by a seven followed by a six so whatever that adds up to you know you might get maybe say 25 say 30 percent in the top five or something like that would be um uh, would be reasonable but and then and then and then the tail is very very long so that's for a normal uh, that that's sort of the, the the shape of probability for a normal tournament. So you've just pointed out, for example, unlike many sports, you would take any better would take the field Over against anybody. against the top five players. I mean, and oh, it wouldn't yeah. even be close. Yeah, you can you and you can um, uh, you know, bookies offer that you know, right? And yes, the odds on that are longer than one to one. Um, so um. But this year's British Open, even relative to that wide-open baseline, uh, is sort of extra wide-open. The um, uh, uh, right now, it's it's. Uh, I just I just checked before we we got on the phone, 
and it's pricing um, Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth, and Ricky Fowler in all about the 55 to 6% range as sort of co-favorites, which is really half of the likelihood that you generally see for a favorite. What do you think is, what do you think is causing that? Do you think it's, well, let me give you a bunch of theories, and maybe you could react to all of them. Mm-hmm. So one is, one possibly, and maybe you could also put on your analytics hat and help our listeners decompose this. So one sure. could be, We've got so many good players, they're all equally good. Let's take them one at a time. We've got so many good players, they're all equally good, it's hard to pick amongst them. Is that, is that a reasonable theory that could be that way, that could explain this? Uh, I would say not. I would say it's more the case that... Uh, we we, do, we one advantage I think that um, the Eagle system offers is that we don't just look at things in relative terms. We look at them in absolute terms. Mm-hmm. How good is this golfer? Period. Not just how good is he relative to his peers. Yep. And um, I, I I have some numbers right here. Oh please to, go ahead. Yeah. Give you a sense. So um, the uh, the numbers I have are on the uh, per hole level. So you'd need to multiply by eighteen to get around. But um, uh, in the average men's major tournament this millennium, the player who's ranked first in the world has been uh, uh, .018 strokes better than par on an average hole. So just very quickly, I'm just going to see what that means. In terms well, it's of, about three and a half strokes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so... 3.3 yeah, three strokes. Yeah, so... Um, uh, no, I was sorry. Point oh point oh one eight times eighteen. So they'd be the average best player um, in a, in uh, or world top. Oh, it was about player, point three strokes. You're saying yeah, it would be about three strokes better than par in an average major. Right. Um, uh, and then typically a second ranked player would be about even par. A third ranked player would be about oh point three strokes per per round above par, and it goes down from there. This year. Um, we have Dustin Johnson still as, as the best player, but at um, .02 strokes above par per hole. So what that means, just to, to give these, to make these numbers a bit more interpretable for for uh, for your audience, is we have the best player in in this field this year as roughly no better than typically a player who would be ranked third or fourth in the world in the average year. Mm-hmm. And we have our second best player, who we think is Rory McIlroy, um, uh, is only about as good as a typical fourth-ranked player would be, and it goes down from there. So consistently, um, no, I don't think it's that there are so many good players. I think it's that relative to the baseline set over it's the not enough good players. years, nobody has yeah. really been absolutely on top of their game. Well, that was the, that was the second. So first of all, I, uh, again, we're talking to Dan Rosenheck, data and sports editor of The Economist here on uh, Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Um, Dan, the thing I love what you did is I came up with a theory that says there are so many good players, and actually, and, and as you're pointing out, both there are so many good players and there are so many players not on the top of their game would both lead to the prediction that the odds are equal, but it's interesting to know kind of which of the two it is, and in yep. this case, it's it's likely. So let me ask you another question. Another possibility is also maybe just related to what you said, is that none of these players, by the way, when I look at all the players that are listed as favorites, like Dustin Johnson had a great streak and then he fell down a set of stairs and didn't play yeah. the Masters. Rory McIlroy 
I remember the last time he's played extremely well. Um, Justin Rose kind of was playing well at the Masters. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of gave it. Ricky Fowler's won some recently. Sergio Garcia obviously won the yeah. Masters. But is it also maybe that there's no, I mean, if you look at the records right now, and maybe you could tell us how the Eagle system brings us in. If you look at the PGA Tour right now, it's like a different guy's winning every week. Yeah, I mean the thing about golf is there's usually always always different guys winning any winning every week in the non Tiger Woods at his peak division. But even more than average, yes, there is um, uh, there isn't uh, there isn't anybody that's uh, at least as far as Eagle is concerned uh, has really uh, uh, just has has been playing over the past stretch of time at a level that would be consistent with sort of the standard favorites 10% chance to win. It's sort of the the best players, uh, it just so happens that no people are playing at about, the best players are about half that level right now. Does the ego? Does your ego system sort of like? Is there is there any particular player that sort of like uh, differs substantially between the ego system and kind of the betting odds? Is there yeah, like, a... I, 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 as you can imagine, I checked this right before yeah. this conversation. Yeah, I, I I have I have one I have one player to 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 back and one player to fade relative to, relative to the market. Um, so uh, the. Uh, the player that we are most bullish on relative to the markets is Matt Kuchar. Um, and the one we are least, we're most bearish on relative to the markets is Tommy Fleetwood. And, uh, and I think that that's um, uh, a really helpful uh, contrast to sort of understand how Eagle looks at things uh, perhaps differently than the way um, even a very knowledgeable golf fan would. Um, so uh, the first thing uh, I think that, expl- that accounts for that discrepancy is that, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, it looks like a different guy's um, winning every week. So uh, just that statement shows that your, um, your sort of first gut instinct is to look at where a player finished, and in particular in how many tournaments did they either finish first or top three or whatever. And that's also how the official world golf rankings work. And um, Tommy Fleetwood uh, has won um, a bunch of tournaments recently. I just looked it up. He won the uh, HNA Open to France, WGC, uh, second in WGC Mexico. He won the Abu Dhabi HFCC Championship. So he's got a lot of W's, uh, and th- uh, which are hard to get in a sport like golf. And that's shot him up the official world rankings, and that's probably put him on a lot of betters' radar screens, um, and they think he's got a lot of momentum. Eagle doesn't care um, where you finished relative to your peers. All it looks at is what was your score, what was the uh, average, the score of an average player in that tournament, and then it's all based on uh, on that gap, adjusting for the strength of the field in the tournament. So, um, well, Dan, we have to wrap up okay. here. But uh, first of all, again, we want to thank you for joining us here on Ro- Morton Moneyball. Uh, this has been Dan Rosenheck, data and sports editor for the Economist. Um, we'd like to thank you and uh, thank you for enlightening us about the British Open. My pleasure. Happy to talk. Great. So this is Wharton Moneyball. Half the show is over. That's kind of halftime, as we call it here on Wharton Moneyball. We have an hour to go. Please stay with us and join us right after the break. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. 
Welcome back. Welcome back, sports fans. Welcome back, statistics fans. And welcome back, business fans. This is Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of those topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm joined by my friend and co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We just got off the phone with Dan Rosenheck from The Economist. We were talking about golf and uh, kind of data journalism, which was exciting times. It's interesting to see that uh, data science has gotten to that field as well. Well, we're very fortunate, Shane, to have a returning guest, actually, here on Wharton Moneyball, uh, Professor Louis Passfield, Passfield uh, professor at Kent University, uh, School of Sport and Exercise Science. He has over 30 years' experience in sports science. He's been part of several uh, British national teams, British cycling teams. And, of course, this is perfect timing because the Tour de France is actually going on right now. So, Professor Passfield, uh, Louis, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with Shane Jensen. Good morning, Eric and Shane. Hey, good morning. So first, let's start with uh, where are you calling in from? And, uh, you know, what has been your observation so far on the Tour de France? <laughs> well, I'm actually, although I'm based at the University of Kent primarily, uh, this year I've been fortunate enough to be on study leave. So I'm actually calling you from Calgary this morning. Where Calgary. Wow, that's my hometown. Fantastic. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Calgary. That's great. Enjoy, enjoying the uh, fresh mountain air. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so I've um, been at Calgary for the last year and, and actually running a study on uh, training in cyclists here. Wow. So why don't you, just for our listeners that uh, you've been on our show before, um, what does it mean to be in the field of whether it's cycling or sport and exercise science? Uh, what does that mean when you say you've been running a study? Like, what does that mean and what have you been doing, especially with regards to cycling? Yes. Well, the study has been with a group of local uh, competitive cyclists based here in Calgary. And what we've done is we've brought them into the lab to measure their fitness on three different occasions. In fact, the third one is still to come. So we started at the beginning of the year. Uh, we've measured halfway through the season and we'll measure them again at the end of the season. So we had to track their changes in fitness. Um, but at the same time, we've also asked them to record all their training uh, using a, a wearable device. Uh, in this case, it's actually fitted directly to the bike. So it's not strictly wearable. It's a power meter that, that um, measures how hard they're working. And the idea is that we're trying to link what they do in training with any um, changes we observe in fitness in the lab. So to, to see if we can figure out what the optimal tr training strategy is for people who want to exercise. Well, so as we know here on Wharton Moneyball, one of the actually I would not have necessarily predicted this three plus years ago when we started the show. But uh, Louis, you've been one of the people that has brought this to our listeners. I would not have guessed the role that analytics plays in training. You know, everybody knows, you know, because of the book Wharton Moneyball. Well, it affects who you draft and maybe it affects on field decisions. But could you tell us a little bit about maybe how analytics has changed not just your professional career for the training aspect, but also the field of science? <laughs> well, it, it's great fun, and we're, we're not quite there yet. If I start off with a little personal anecdote. Yeah, please do. I, I, I started in, in sports science many years ago uh, because I wanted, to learn, I wanted to win the Tour de France. Uh, and I thought that if I went and studied sports science, I could apply what I learned in university to my own performance, uh, and, and that would in turn help me to win the Tour. Uh, unfortunately, I learned two hard lessons when, in doing that. The first was that um, sports science didn't have all the answers that I was looking for. So there I was with my spreadsheet all primed, ready to start typing in the magic formulas that my lecturers would deliver to me. Uh, and I found they couldn't. They couldn't tell me exactly what I needed to do. That the process of training is actually more intuitive and based on experience than based on science itself. 
And the second hard lesson I also learned was that I lacked the talent. So even if there were a magic formula, I'm not sure it would have worked so well with me. Well, um, let me ask you, so that, you, that relates to something you just said in your opening comments, and so I wanted to understand this. So you've worked for the British Olympic team, and you just mentioned that you're going to be working, your study, your current study is with local competitive cyclists. Mm-hmm. So how do we know, or maybe we don't know, how do we know what's optimal in the training regime for, let's call it very competitive cyclists, but people not at the Olympic level? How do we know, or maybe we don't know, how that training regime would apply if we went to the highest level of cyclist that's that's a really good point and and i think that the truth is that that what we're realizing in um, sports science generally is is that the um, training needs of each individual are are very individualized Um, and and so really part of the challenge here is trying to find some rules or guidelines that will be generalizable principles that more or less anyone could adopt if they're keen on improving their fitness or making the most of the time they have available to train but at the same time, finding ways in which we can tailor that to the individual's needs and, uh, or specific circumstances. So could you tell so, us, give us an example, because I, I would imagine, so let me just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a statement, and uh, Louis, please correct me. And again, we're talking to Professor Louis Passfield, professor at Kent University School of Sport and Exercise Sciences. Um, he's actually talking to us from Calgary, where he's doing some uh, experiments on training and stuff. So what, why isn't a simple thing, like maybe our listeners out here on Morton Moneyball are saying, I don't understand. Isn't it just about amount of time on the bike, you know, maximum speed uh, obtained, and kind of the, let's call it, the time at which you're riding at your peak level? Like, why isn't there like basically the box score of cycling? And if there is one, what would it, what would be in it? Well, I think with the analogy, with the analysis you've just given, you'd probably make an excellent coach because that's, that's about where we are at the moment. And and what I'm looking for is to say, can we be smarter than that? Can we find ways of uh, refining that process to make it even more effective? So what's what? Well, so what's refining of, you know, you know, in the old days, I assume you follow baseball somewhat. You know, there's batting average, home runs and RBIs. Mm -hmm. So in cycling, where have things advanced beyond, you know, let's call it hours on the bike, peak speed and let's call it length of time at which you're at your kind of maximum capacity? Like what are the more, let's call it subtle statistics and measures that have been shown to be kind of predictive of favorable outcomes? Uh Uh-huh. So so one of the key innovations over the last few years has been the ability to measure the the work that um, a rider does by placing a meter on the bicycle itself. Uh, And so we can actually measure the, the, the physical work in terms of the physics of what's going on and, and the work the rider's doing. So now we have a means of quantifying exactly how hard those riders are working in the Tour de France itself. We can provide mathematical models that make a reasonably accurate estimation of what it would take to win a stage of the Tour, or any given stage of the Tour, in fact. Um, and so we can understand the performance and we can model that, and we can then look at different ways of playing around with the performance to refine that performance. For example, change aerodynamic drag, change the, uh, by changing clothing or position and that kind of thing. The bit that we still haven't really cracked is how you change the training side. Uh, and, and so that would be that that's obviously the main factor that makes up the performance once you've taken uh, all the uh, physical aspects out. So the physics of cycling away is, is the conditioning part. And it's trying to refine that. That's the next challenge. And of course, the real benefit is that this w- if we can crack that, we can benefit not just the elite cyclists, but everybody that wants to exercise. And those principles will probably apply in running, in swimming, rowing and so on as well. So so that that's the real challenge. And the exciting bit then is whether data that we can get the kind of big data we can get from 
from wearables means we could tackle this problem in a new way. So rather than as we've typically done in science in the past, we've conducted a laboratory experiment, we've given people a standardized training program and said, here, follow this for 10 weeks, and then we'll evaluate you at the end of that 10 weeks to see how successful the training program is. The difficulty there is that we, it takes 10 weeks to do the study, and we've only evaluated one training program, or maybe two if we run right. two side by side. But by instrumenting people and taking big data, we can actually do a retrospective look, provided we've gathered the data and designed the experiment correctly. So we could look at a whole plethora of, of um, different training regimes that people might choose to follow themselves and try and pick out the characteristics that are more, more associated with being successful, or at least, if it is, at least as useful, those things that didn't work. So uh, we're talking to Professor Louis Passfield, professor at Kent University School of Sports and Exercise Science here at Morton Bunnyball. If you have a question for Professor Passfield, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Uh, Louis, I have a question for you, which as an academic, I can, and I'm an academic, you're an academic, I can ask you a question that may not come to most people, but I'd be interested. You, you mentioned something in your last comment that made me think of this. You said the, the advantage of big data and big data science and tracking people through their bikes is people kind of choose their own regimen, and you could see how effective it is. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with what we call in marketing or economics kind of the endogeneity of it, which is, well, I've been cycling for 20 years. I knew what regimen is going to be best for me because I know me, but therefore the data, it's not a randomized experiment where you're randomizing people to different training regimens and you're seeing which one's more effective. So how do you deal with the problem of what's called the classic endogeneity or self-selection bias that you may not get to know what works in general because people are self-selecting what works for themselves? Uh, I, I think that would be a, a, a big issue um, in, in a tightly controlled experiment. The, 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 challenge, the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment, though, is, is that we, we're not even quite sure what, what that endogeneity looks like. So if we can actually find signs or symptoms that that exists, that in itself would be quite useful. Uh, as I said, at the moment, the key training prescription comes from the, the, the coach and to a certain extent supported by the sports scientist. But it's largely based on experience and intuition. It's the coach's assessment of what the event requires and what that particular a athlete um, needs. Uh, and, and it's largely intuitive um, knowledge and experience that drives that. So on, on one level, we're in a situation where any kind of knowledge or insight would, would be useful and helpful, I think, in, in driving our understanding of the training process. So I've kind of ducked your question by saying perhaps at this stage we're at a level where that, that kind of self-selection doesn't matter. And if we can actually pick up signs of it, that would be useful to us in, in the first instance. I think the other thing is that the scale of the data that's available now, I mean, I think Strava, for example, is a website that a lot of people upload their data to. It's got about 23 million users and recorded over a, a 1 billion different um, activity sessions. When you're able to start to mine data on that kind of scale, then you can probably start to account for some of those factors too. Obviously, that would be a hugely ambitious study, and that's well beyond the kind of thing I'm envisaging at the moment. But in the future, that tells us what may be possible. Can you give us a sense of where analytics currently is in the field of cycling? Like, for example, do most, whether it's uh, country Olympic teams or, let's say, teams in the Tour de France, do most of them have data scientists today, be people that are not only worry about the measurement side of the data, which it sounds like interesting putting devices on bikes and tracking it that way, but also people that can run big data science types of algorithms? 
Um, I think the big data science algorithm part is still missing in cycling, uh, but it, for certain, each team within the Tour de France will have their own, for want of a better expression, data scientists. Sometimes they wear several hats at once, but, but they will be instrumenting all their riders, regularly capturing all that data, mostly to part, monitor the performance of the riders, to check that they're on track for uh, their preparation for major events, and, and also to give an insight into what the demands of a particular event is. So, for example, in the next couple of stages, we're going to see the time trial in the Tour de France. Uh, and the, the, the teams will have a very clear idea of what each of their riders needs to produce to, to achieve a certain time in that, in that race. So they'll know exactly what kind of power output or work rate the rider will need to sustain and how that will equate to a given speed. So if they can make an estimation of what the winning speed will be, then they can predict how hard that rider will work, and then they can look at the data from the rider that's coming in from the race and make an assessment of whether that's fe- that looks feasible or not. Can we talk about... Um, so? Let me frame it, uh, maybe make a baseball analogy for our listeners who are in one Morton Moneyball. A lot of stuff in baseball uh, analytics is done both off the field and then on the field. And so a lot of the work you're doing, I would call it off the field. It's around training. Could you tell us what the use of analytics has been within a race? Yeah, like is, for, is, there, is there a strategy component to uh-huh. like the, a lot of these stages of the Tour de France that, that you know, like analytics can kind of inform? There are, there are certain stages of the, of the Tour de France that really lend themselves to that. So, for example, a race that finishes with a final climb and, and the, the end of the race is at the top of the mountain, you can make a prediction about what kind of pace you think it is required to sustain up that final climb. And, and that can be done, as you say, uh, in the back room. But then the training and the preparation of that rider may involve repeated training sessions where they're reproducing that kind of effort at the end of a long ride to see whether that's that, that's actually physically possible and to condition them to get better at producing that. I don't even know the answer to the, building on Shane's question, I don't even, uh, Louis, I don't even know the answer to the fun question. Can a rider have an earpiece in their ear during the race and someone from the back is saying you're overexerting effort, you know, throttle it down 3% or something like that. Is that allowable during the Tour de France where the data scientist or as you are, you're a sports and exercise scientist, could you be in the ear literally of a biker uh, during the race? Uh, certainly technically it's possible. The, the, there are some regulations around the, the doing that in the Tour de France, but they do have earpieces, so they, they do get guidance in, or they can get guidance in that way. The, the, the challenge there is that a bike race is so chaotic that it's hard to keep an accurate track of what a rider is doing and make really carefully calibrated um, guidance, give really cal- carefully calibrated guidance to the rider. So normally you're relying on the rider's self-knowledge, if you like, for that. But my, my vision is that in the future, we will be able to model performances and training so accurately that, that, that the GPS watch or the device, your, your mobile phone app, will turn around from being a record, data recording device and instead become a prescription, invite, a prescription device and do exactly what you're suggesting. So whether it's training or racing, it will tell you speed up or slow down, work harder, work slower. Maybe you shouldn't train today if you want to get the best effect. Have, a, have an extra rest day or you, you look like you're at your risk of, of injuring yourself if you persist working this hard for this long. 
What do you think is stopping that day from being here today? I could imagine lots of things. So I'll, uh, Louis, I'll throw out lots of options, and you pick any or none of these. One could be the data's not available. That's one. Another could be the data's available, but you know there aren't enough data scientists. The other could be the data's available, there's not enough data scientists, but people haven't yet been converted to this being an area to make an investment in. So very related to our show, Wharton Moneyball, is it due to the culture? Is it due to the data, or is it due to the analysis methods, or is it due to all three? Uh, I, I think it's a little bit of a combination of all three. I, I, I think we're moving into the terrain where it's becoming possible to do these things. We still don't quite know how to do it, um, but to really tackle this, it, it needs the, an investment on a, on a reasonable scale. Uh, and so without the clear signs that this could be successful, I think people have been hesitant so far. But th- this is absolutely the area that I'm interested in working in and trying to make make happen. That's, that's my vision, if you like. So how, how in your field, maybe you could tell us, how in your field does things go from academia to practice? Mm-hmm. And so you're a professor. I assume that's your full-time job. And so, I mean, not that you're not working with teams and other <laughs> stuff like that, but how, how does it work in the sports science area where you can both be a professor and do research and then also hopefully have it applied in the field? Yeah, I, I think that if you're, if you're able to link those two bits together, that, that's the holy grail. I think the reality is, uh, and I don't mean intend this to sound critical of academia, but, but often we have to um, reduce a real-world problem that's actually very complex. We always it, do. We have to all the time. You, you were generous in saying often. I'll cut straight to the chase. We always do. <laughs> So we take a complex real-world problem and we just try and make it complicated rather than complex. And in simplifying the problem in that way, I think what tends to happen is we sometimes lose some of the real-world applicability. Uh, and then mean, that means that translating the academic research back into the real world um, can still remain quite a, a significant challenge. Um, and so, for, for example, if you look at the research that's been done around training, as, as I say, most of the carefully controlled research has actually been laboratory studies where the participants in the study, the people taking part in the training, come to the lab to be trained and they perform a very fixed regimen or, or routine and they do that repeatedly over several weeks with minimal variation. Now, in the real world, nobody actually trains that way. And so the problem we've got is that to exert the scientific control, so far, we're actually removing some of the real-world applicability and, we're, and therefore not so sure how well it applies uh, when, when you try and translate those findings. So this is the, it would have, in the statistical language, uh, in both of our fields, it would, be, it would either have low external validity or yeah. low predictive validity. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think it's, it's now we're seeing devices like wearable devices enabling us to start to think about how we can bridge that gap. So an- another question I have for you is, do you see, let me ask you a different question. Let's imagine you had mentioned your dream at one point was to ride in the Tour de France. Matter of fact, I cycled a lot as a kid. That was I never had those ambitions, but let's imagine I did. Do you see analytics leading to a, what I'll call a compression in the degree to which there's heterogeneous abilities? In other words, if everybody can use data science, will that lead to an even more competitive, in a good sense, a more competitive uh-huh. sport? Because in some sense, everyone will be able to kind of reach their near maximum, which there may not be a lot of heterogeneity around people. Mm-hmm. Well, well, the degree to which I'm eulogizing about this, you'd think perhaps I would believe that to be entirely the case. 
Uh, actually, I suspect that um, the, the, the real world situation is more complicated than that. So, for example, psychology is an important aspect uh, of, of an elite performance or any given performance and the motivation to train and work hard. And that's something that's much harder to capture. So I, I think we'll see a very small degree of compression, but actually there will always be a role for a coach in, in the process of exercise and training. Uh, what I hope that the data will do is give us some clear guidelines uh, and enable us to take a more comprehensive snapshot of what's going on for a given person or athlete uh, at any one moment and make more informed decisions. But ultimately, there will still be difficult decisions that have to be taken, and that's why a, a competent or experienced coach will be invaluable, no matter how good the data scientist or, or how well the data is analyzed. So I think it will move us in that direction a small, uh, to a small to me or medium degree, and it will particularly help people that don't have access to coaches. Um, but in, when you're really starting to push the envelope of performance, you, you will always need that informed decision-making process to decide what to do next. And data analytics will only ever be a part of that picture, not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, we're here on Wharton Moneyball, talking to Professor Louis Passfield, a professor at Kent University School of Sport and Exercise Science. So I want to ask you a question. Um, what would be, you know, if one had to describe the optimal, let's call them, physical characteristics of a cyclist. Like, I'm 6 feet, 195 pounds. I always thought, I'm too heavy. You know, I'm just too big, boned. and heavy. Look, What would an optimal cyclist look like? Is the person 6 foot 2? Is the person 5 foot 8? Is the person <laughs> stronger? Like, just like, you know, is the person, yeah. not, I don't want to say stocky, but is the person, you know, like, could be a rugby player? Or is the person, you naturally obviously see cyclists tend to be thinner, but that could be because they ride a lot. What would be the optimal, do you, have people studied kind of the optimal physical makeup of what a cyclist would look like? Uh, to, to an extent, yes, they, yes, we do know some of that. I, I'm afraid I'm going to give the rather vague academic answer, which is also that it does depend which cycling event or which aspect of the Tour de France. Well, that's not a vague answer. That's no. a good answer. So maybe you could get into sprints versus longer races and which one. It, it, exactly. Uh, and, and I think it, it, if you look at, for example, the, the sprinters that are in play at the end of each stage, particularly the flat stages, you'll see that they tend to, to uh, favor or those sprinters tend to have as characteristics. They're big muscular characters right um, and they're capable of producing lots of power mm -hmm. and, and so in that sense it's the it's the raw engine and the size of the of the person that's the key, the key factor you don't want to uh, drag that engine up a big hill do you but the, the, it, then that's exactly the point so then the, the small stick-like men uh, they tend to be the, the, the mountain climbers the mountain goats that can shoot uphill and defy gravity because they're having to lift that weight up the mountain physically as part of what they're doing so the lighter they are the lesser penalty they, they pay there so they'll tend to be very lean they're not they're not carrying any extra weight at all um and they're just about fighting gravity so they will be tending they will tend to be small lightweight riders um the sprinters will be the really big powerhouse guys and then to win a stage race you need to be a bit of an all-rounder you need to be able to do a bit of everything so they they will be less clearly defined in in terms of any given extreme but they will be very near the best in, in most categories. So, so what I'm hearing is that if if they manage to produce a Tour de France consisting entirely of downhill stages, I would have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I have a serious question, not Shane's question. I, you know, as, as you know, but yes, Shane and I would have chances in the downhill ones. Let's put it that way. Um, you, I, you, I, because I, we're on radio, you realize you could be any shape and size you want. Nobody yeah, that's know. right. That's right. Though. Well, I've already our, given away that I'm I six feel like feet one ninety five. So I've already given away that information and the information that I'm sitting here on the radio instead of out in the Tour de France should give some people some guidance. So I'm going to make an analogy. Uh, 
uh, Louis, between uh, and uh, give me a second, give me a little leeway here between yours and horse racing, and let me make the following analogy. We've had a guest on our show before, Jeff Cedar, the founder and president of EQB, um, where we ask him, what makes a great horse? And he goes, the horse's heart. And we're like, oh, you mean the grit and the passion? He goes, no, the size mm-hmm. of the horse's heart. <laughs> um, the, so is there a day where you could be doing CAT scans of cyclists and say, this person has, I'm making this up, a big left ventricle. This person can really generate a huge amount of oxygen. And as Jeff Cedar has always told us about horses, every horse slows down during the race. You think horses speed up at the end, but they don't. They all slow down. It's just which slows down less. Uh-huh. Is is there a just a, a fit, like an anatomical part? Forget whether I'm 6'2", 5'8", whatever I am. I got a big physical heart and i've got a good blood flow and oxygenation is that has that gotten its way into the analytics of cycling um for sure although um we we don't necessarily look so much at the the detailed physiology if you're if you're in the high performance world but in terms of our understanding of what makes performance it's exactly the same a big heart is a key aspect of a of a great tour de france rider um, so the, the cardiac output, as we've referred to it, is strongly related to your engine size to, um, in terms of your ability to produce power on a bicycle. So the bigger your heart, the more power you can produce. The, the caveat there is that one of my colleagues at the University of Kent, um, Professor Sam Makora, he, his area of, specialism, area of specialism is mental fatigue. And what he's shown is that during prolonged exercise, when we stop, the body is actually physically capable of continuing. It's just mentally we're unable to persist. So there's actually a mental fatigue component to that as well. And it wouldn't surprise me if the same thing isn't true of a horse. They actually choose to slow down rather than being physically forced to slow down. So it's not quite as simple as having the engine and driving it to its limit. It's having a big engine and then being able to drive it as hard as you possibly can. Could you give us a, a sense of, in the last few minutes we have with you this morning, could you give us a sense of, well, where are we in the Tour de France? Like, how far along are we? Maybe just for our listeners. Um, how long is the Tour de France in days? How uh-huh. many stages are are there? Where are we now? And kind of what's happening in the Tour de France? Okay, so the, the Tour de France is a, a three-week race, and this weekend it will finish. Um, so they're really t- getting towards the, the final closing stages. Uh, and uncharacteristically, we've got a really close race still on. So seconds only separate um, the top five riders, even though they've been racing for the best part of three weeks. So it's all down to the last few days. Uh, the la- next couple of days are in the mountains. Um, which is incredibly strenuous and stressful. So, so this will probably, the mountain stages will probably decide the winners, right? Because the last stage is kind of a, isn't, I, I, I was at the last stage, and let me think about mm-hmm. the year, 1984. Um, it ends at uh, on, on the Champs-Élysées. That's not, at least it did then. The winners uh, always seem to just be coasting down there. Yeah, that, that on the last, last stage. Time. So are the next right. couple stages going to determine the winner? That, that, that's right. Well, the, the final stage, it's sort of agreed that it's a bit of a celebration of the race itself. So uh, the, the actual finishing order on the final stage is, is fiercely contested just to see who can win the final stage. But the general um, assumption is that the race lead won't change hands on the final day. However, this year, there is a time trial the day before that. So it's a race against the clock. And there, all... all, all um, Everything is to play for. So although the mountains are likely to be highly influential, the key decision in terms of who will win this race, we probably won't know until the time trial on the penultimate day. 
How much carryover would there be? Let's imagine I want to win the race. And, yeah. and actually, thanks to Zach and the team out up back, we actually have some time. here. like I see there's one gentleman that's behind. I think it says 18 seconds, another one 23 seconds, another one 29 seconds. If I go all out for the mountain stages and then I could be maybe more physically tired for the time trial, how would someone think about that strategy? You know, as, as you just said, I've got mountains and I've got a time trial. How, if I want to optimize my time among the three, should I like leave a little bit in the tank from the mountain stage like how, how do and i assume how, that 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 strategy would vary from from a participant to participant because right. you know i guess if i if i am the sort of uh small guy that does better in mountains that's where i kind of essentially have to build my lead you're you're absolutely right shane so the the, the challenge here is that if the mountains are your strength then you're hoping to build up a big enough gap in the mountains that despite the fact you know you might lose a little bit in the time trial you'll still end up in the lead so the, the, that, that's part of the calculation here is, um, can I afford to ride just a little bit more conservatively in the mountains so I can really give my best to the time trial or vice versa? The truth is, of course, as well, that these guys are so close to their limit and it's such a competitive race that they probably won't be able to use that kind of tactic very much. And they're going to have to rely on their natural powers of recovery to, to see, just see how well they come through for the next day. So it wouldn't surprise me if we don't see a few surprising performances. Oh, sorry, double surprise there. Uh, if we see a few surprises in the time trial where riders are just more fatigued than they'd expected. So let me ask you maybe one last question, if because we, obviously we love having you on as a guest. Let's imagine it's a year from now, so it's the 2018 Tour de France, and we do hope you join us again, maybe even sooner than that. What If we're talking about the state of analytics in your field, what will have changed in the year that's passed? So what do you see uh-huh. as kind of sitting on the frontiers right now? Well, it's funny you should ask that question, because one of the things we're just about to do is to start our, uh, another study where we're hoping to recruit uh, members of the public uh, to contribute their own data and take part in, in, in um, an experiment that we'll be conducting at the, start, at the beginning of the next year. So the idea there is that people will perform some field tests that we'll specify, but they'll do them themselves under their own control and contribute their own data from that to the study to give us a bigger pool of data to, to analyze and start to tackle this question about how we can find the most effective training regimes. That's the kind of work that I think will help drive this forward. Well, I lied. I have one last question for you. How much of that, by the way, how much of this, I think, should be, and I hope is, supported by the government? In other words, Mm -hmm. would we agree that people that ride more or, or train more, you know, they may be healthier, which should save money from a health point of view, from a societal point of view? How much of the work that you guys are doing is kind of, you know, people that care about health and public policy, are there people interested? Um, There's certainly interest in that. The the challenge here is actually getting the funding to to, um, support these studies on a big scale. So what we've done at the moment is team up with Golden Cheetah, which is an open source software um, um, maker. And um, we're we're running this study effectively just out of our own pockets. But at the same time, we're trying to find either companies or or, um, government research grants to to support this work so we can extend it further. So that's uh, hopefully around the corner, but we're not there yet. But well, you're absolutely right in terms of the implications. Well, Professor Passfield, uh, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Again, we've been talking to Professor Louis Passfield, professor at Kent University School of Sport and Exercise Science. Uh, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball, and we hope to have you on again soon. 
It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. So again, that's three quarters of the show down, one quarter to go. I know all of our listeners who have been joining us for the entire show are waiting to hear Shane and I talk about 5-2 and two Tom Brady versus the hypothetical 4-3 Tom Brady, the 19-15 and 15 Roger Federer versus the 17-16 and 16 major Roger Federer, how things have changed, how small events can change kind of the history of sports. So we have a half hour to go. Please join us again after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks to our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, again, for, and our associate producer for bringing us back with some interesting music. I'm trying to decide whether I want to just listen to the music for the last half hour or talk about we sports and statistics. No, we we're not going to do that because there's too much sports statistics and business for us to get to. So, Shane, in the first half hour of the show, you and I teased our listeners with uh, as we were leaving for the last half hour. We teased our listeners about kind of these key moments in sports we had you know i gave you the hypothetical then you know tom brady is five and two in the super yeah. bowls that's a fact um but you know if he hadn't come back against atlanta he could be four and three in the super bowl uh roger federer is now got 19 men's major titles um uh, not rafael nadal who has second most has 15 but if you flap back if you go back to january the australian open Federer was in the fifth set against Nadal, down 3-1 in the fifth, so down a break. He comes back and wins the last five games of the match, wins the match, makes him at 18, Nadal at 15. Federer obviously has won Wimbledon since then. He's now at 19, but it could have been 17-16, yeah. to 16, all of that. So can you talk to our listeners about, from a historical perspective, kind of, I guess we want to call it leverage, yeah. these kind of high-leverage moments in sports? Yeah, no, I mean, it, uh, this is something that kind of, you know, both fascinates and frustrates me about, about you know, the very nature of sports and how sports is reported, that these sort of narratives are, uh, the narratives that we create after the fact are so tied to the actual outcome as opposed to process, or like they're tied to the sort of like, you know, instead of focusing on the number of, con you know, if if we if we all agree that sports has a certain amount of randomness to it, you know, that's part of the reason we love it, um, you know, you should probably reward people for giving, you know, them and their teammates as many coin flips, as many chances as victory as possible, as opposed to focusing on those particular coin flips that led to victory. So, I mean, to to take a specific example, the example of Tom Brady, he's the greatest of all time in my mind, not just because he won five Super Bowls, but because he got to, he took his team to seven Super Bowls. So right? where and, would you... and that and that's and that's sort of like you know, I mean, every I think almost everybody now, because he's gotten five, agrees that, yes, he has eclipsed Joe Montana and is the greatest quarterback of all time. But I think for most people, they needed that fifth Super Bowl. And maybe they even needed that fifth Super Bowl in the way that it happened in such a dramatic sort of, you know, phenomenal fashion to kind of put him above Montana. Whereas in my mind, he was already above Montana because seven, six— or seven four and two is in your better mind. than just, four. It, four and two just better than four and zero. Oh. It just yes, is. it is. Four and two is better than four and zero. Oh. Well, let me ask you a question related to that then, and we'll transition to NBA in just a second. So LeBron, I don't remember. Has he been to eight or nine uh, finals now? It's oh, it's eight. It's eight or nine. Yeah. Jordan made it to six. Yeah. So is there ever? I guess LeBron's been to eight, including I think seven straight. Yeah. Is let's imagine LeBron. So LeBron is three and five in the finals. That's a fact. Let's imagine he ends up four and eight in the finals. 
It's not impossible to believe he may right. end up four and eight in the fi- he may end up three and eight in the finals or three and nine. Is there any way you could say that four and eight is better than six and zero? Oh? Jordan was six yeah. and zero. Oh. I mean, I'm not sure I would necessarily say. I mean, because which would you rather be? Four and eight. If again, well, I mean, I'd rather be six. six and oh. I mean, I, six. Yeah, right. But I mean. I'd rather have six and zero because you know as a, you know as six is more than three or six four. is more than four and you know I I'm the participant you know I want that out, positive outcome but if you want to kind of sort of like you know if we're trying to estimate the latent awesomeness of these players the you know just sort of who was the better player I don't know if six and zero as is greater evidence of, of, of is is better evidence of greatness than than four and eight or whatever it would be. You know, uh, with LeBron, I mean, I think again, putting his, taking his team to the finals in twelve years as opposed to in six, I think that actually stands out as more impressive. I mean, the only reason I'm backing off LeBron as the greatest player of all time versus Jordan is I would have to look a little bit more closely at at kind of the level of competition. Yep. Um. You know that that you know the kind of teams that the Bulls were facing back in the '90s versus what LeBron's doing now. I mean. Uh, you know, I'm going to take a little bit away from LeBron's achievement. Is that like, I mean, who are they going through to get well, to the I finals wanted, every year? So I wanted to get to that. And ju- I yeah. wanted to get to a, a, a given topic about what I'm going to call the lost generation. And let me, and I'm going to tie two sports together, tennis and the NBA. So when Federer won, Federer, I think we both know, Federer has won two majors this year at the age of 35. He's almost 36, but he, at the age of 35. He won the Australian Open and he won Wimbledon. The other major, the French, was won by Nadal, age 31. If you're a 26, 27, 28-year-old tennis player, in other words, if you're Marin Cilic, mm-hmm. who Federer beat in the finals, if you're Juan Martin Del Potro, if you're uh, Kei Nishikori, these are all Thomas Burdich. These yeah. are all guys in the 5 to 10 range. If you're you know, Zverev, if you're you know, all of these guys... They've kind of lost their career. And what I mean by that is you've played in an era where four mm-hmm. guys have won. I think the number is something. Well, if you just add Federer yeah. at 19, Nadal at 15, there's and Djokovic, direct. there's 46 yeah. majors between them. If you add Warinka and Murray, there's 54 majors out of like the last 58 or 9. Oh, take, a, take an extreme example. Like, what about on the women's side? No, 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 no. The women's women side are... has been different. The women's side, I mean, Serena has 23. Yeah. But understand, I mean, Venus has seven. But then, I mean, there are 30 other majors I that see. women have won. And matter of fact, yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week. Serena and Venus have won 30 out of 60. The four men I mentioned have won 57 out of 56 out of 60. So I wanted to relate it also to the NBA. If you're James Harden, yeah. You're in your prime, but you're not going to be in your prime in five more years. Westbrook, Carmelo Anthony, maybe even on the Spurs, Kawhi Leonard. These are all obviously some of the top players. Chris Paul, yeah. Hall of Fame players. They've played in an era of the super team of the Miami Heat. They've played in the era of the super team of the Golden State Warriors. This eight or nine year window was is basically being controlled by two teams but and Harden, Westbrook, etc. Hasn't these that guys always may been never... the case in basketball? I mean, tell me an era where there hasn't been a super team. Well, in the uh, Lakers, Celtics, Bulls, Spurs, 
now Warriors and Cavaliers, and I forgot the Heat in there, too. There's always... This is just how basketball works. There must be a ton of people who play their entire career, Hall of Fame career, and don't win a championship because they don't happen to be on the one or two teams that are dominant in basketball. That happens all the... I mean, that's just the way basketball works. It's always dominated by one or two teams, okay. as far as I can tell. So you're telling me I'm just kind of... I, I'm not thinking... I, I, I think... I, what I'm, I guess I'm telling you is is what's happening in men's tennis over the last like decade or so is more... Imp- I think stands out more relative to the history of tennis. I think it is more exceptional that you know it's been so top heavy so dominated by four athletes relative to the rest of the history of tennis because I don't remember that happening back in like the 80s or 90s I mean there um, was there was obviously there was Lando and Becker and yeah, all but these all guys, those guys but, but, but I mean Becker has six Ma- you know, Lando Mac- has Mac- nine McEnroe has seven Connors yeah, so, has eight I'm not saying they didn't win yeah, a lot so, of them but you add up their totality yeah it's back in the 30 out of 60 range it's not 55 out of 60 that's range. right and I th- and so I, I think what's happening in men's tennis right now is more unprecedented relative to history whereas basketball i mean convince me otherwise that it hasn't always kind of been this way i mean the t- the name the names on the teams do change slowly decade to decade but it's always dominated by one or two teams so we're you here can on- always predict the finals so we're here on wharton moneyball this is eric bradlow and i'm here with my co-host this morning shane jensen we're here on business radio sirius xm 111 powered by the wharton school if you want to Join the conversation. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Please feel free to join the conversation. So, Shane, let me ask you: When do you think this is likely? As you're projecting out, let's start with the NBA, and yeah. then we'll get to tennis. If you're projecting out in the NBA right now, and you're, you know, a team. Let's say you're the Sixers. This is a yeah. team that's been trust the process, and so now, you know, we've got Joel Embiid, we've got Simmons, we've got Fultz. We have Sarich. Yeah. You know, we've got four really... How far out do you have... Like, let's imagine we look at these as curves. The Golden State Warrior, Cleveland Cavalier curves are near the peak. Yeah. But, you know, four or five years, LeBron's not the same LeBron. Maybe even Steph Curry's not the same Steph Curry. He's not right. 25. And, you He's know, 29 it's or 30. Increasingly so hard the for them curve? to keep that team together. Right. So how does... If you're a team in the NBA right now... What do you see as the intersection Mm. between the, let's call it an upswing curve like the Sixers who have building blocks, or maybe even the Rockets who now have Harden and West, Harden and, um, I I, I apologize, I forget who's joined the Rockets now, Uh, George. How do you, oh, that's Oklahoma City, sorry, Westbrook and George in Oklahoma City, it's Chris Paul and Harden on the Rockets. How do you think about their up curve, the down curve of those teams, and like, when are they ever going to intersect? Is it another? Like, if yeah. I told you the next three years of finals, three, was Golden State against Cleveland, would that surprise you? It wouldn't. I mean, I, I would sort of say, like, uh, the next two years, I'd be more confident Golden State versus Cleveland. I think by year three out, maybe somebody else sneaks in there. But So you're saying, but again, you do agree. We, we talked about, we've been talking about extremism during yeah. the entire show. What really so changes that would this be, type that, of thing is injury, right? I like, know, like, but, let's, but it could be six straight years. Yeah. You don't. That's not. That's not the '80s Celtics, Lakers. I mean, the Sixers were. In the, there, there was no six straight years the same two teams in the finals. Oh, this well, year, maybe what, a team will sneak in even in the next. Yeah, sure. But who's I, that going to be? Who's sneaking in? Oklahoma. So you think Oklahoma City yeah. is going to or LeBron, LeBron like you know tears an ACL like one year and all of a sudden Cleveland's not even. You, you, I mean, like yeah, Cleveland's nothing without can LeBron happen. 
Right. And that's, you know, I mean, that's to a certain extent. I mean, why, why the, the, I, I would argue the Lakers and Celtics would have been fighting it out for another few seasons if Bird's knees hadn't completely given out on him. I mean, like, you know. Oh, for sure. Injuries back. Exactly. So, so injuries, you know, are, are the great kind of equalizer that sort of, basically injuries, as far as I can tell, are the thing that most lead to this turnover at the top. Well, let me ask you a kind of an analytics question then. So in the era of people know what's better for their bodies, they know how yeah. to train better, and analytics plays a part of that, would it surprise you then that we will see longer runs of dominance? Because, you know, I'd say in the Bird era, yeah. they didn't know about training. Not that yeah. Bird didn't train. The guy was a gym rat. But I'm just commenting. Do you think because of longer careers now and yep. longer time at peak, we're going to see more runs of I think dominance w- among among sports where it's like one or two transcendent athletes that like kind of make the difference and obviously the individual sports are like that um basketball is clearly like that where one or two transcendent athletes make all the difference in the world and i think in football we're seeing that i mean brady is playing into his 40s and that's the entire reason that the new england patriots continue to be the class of the nfl yeah i mean as we both know the only two quarterbacks let's say he's about to turn 40 i think brady or may have just turned 40 the only two quarterbacks that have really had exceptional seasons at that age were brett Favre, Mm -hmm. had one with the vikings you remember to a bad pick in the in the playoffs but and maybe Warren Moon yeah. is someone so yeah. how do you how if for our listeners here in Wharton Moneyball and people say well no one has done it yeah. how do you think about a guy like Brady and you I'm a hater you're a, you're yeah. a liker um how do you think about Brady like where do you see him when do you see him showing a oh, measurable decline? Yeah, I Can don't he know. play five more years at the level he's at no. now? I, well, I, I would doubt it. I would doubt it just because that would be so beyond. I, you know, I mean, I'm willing to believe that sort of the age, you know, essentially through great training and, and, and you know, kind of like good usage, I suppose, um, we we're, we're, you know, teams like the Patriots can kind of extend that aging curve like beyond what it has been. And so, you know, Brady is probably going to be the first 40-year-old to play at a high level as a quarterback since far. far and, since you know, far. But, um, but do I believe a 45-year-old can still play at that high level? I mean, I don't think they're going to be able to change the aging curves enough through training, whatever, for that to kick. And I, I do think we're, we, we definitely are seeing the twilight here. Maybe they eke out a couple more seasons with Brady at the helm. And I mean, I think the Patriots sort of through their actions have— have suggested what they believe because they did, you know, they, they didn't trade Garoppolo. They didn't trade Garoppolo. I mean, they've got, you know, by most people's estimations, at least an average NFL quarterback waiting in the wings because they kind of know that they're playing on borrowed time here. Let me ask you a question. This is actually, and I'm going to tie this to tennis and Federer. So you remember, you may remember last year at Wimbledon, uh, Federer was eliminated. He hurt his knee, mm-hmm. um, didn't then play for six or eight months. Do you see a scenario where, I don't mean intentionally, but let's call it semi intentionally, Maybe deflate gate and the penalty was the best thing for Brady. Matter of fact, maybe Brady should only play 12 games every year for the next three or four years. Yeah. Why do I need Brady to play 16 games? I don't like, you know, in other words, unless you have the dream of yeah. the perfect season, like who cares whether they go 15 and one or 13 and three? They're winning their division. Yeah. They're going to be the one or two seed. Give me an argument that would say, actually, just like resting guys in basketball, maybe Brady shouldn't play all 16 games. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that's a solid argument. I, I think... Do you think that it would ever happen? Would the well, mad genius of Bill Belichick ever, I don't say intentionally lose games? And by the way, not only that, 
you're training Garoppolo for the future. Yeah, no, you're not right. only resting Brady, but now you can have a larger sample size and see what you're actually going to get out of Garoppolo. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think probably implementation-wise, what how that would happen, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's a little bit easier to sort of say, like, oh, Brady's a first-half quarterback, let's build a big lead, and then Garoppolo comes in every second half or something like ah, that. So your then, is then interesting. Then having him actually, like, Sit out a starts, whole game. You know, yeah, so... Um, do you, could you ever? I mean, you and I have both watched I mean, you football know, yeah, for thirty the plus years. The Patriots playing I've, Cleveland this year or something. I mean, maybe I know, Brady plays a quarter. That, right, very interesting. Because you know, by the way, I want to say I've never seen. Maybe you can remind me of something, but I've never seen a what I would call a systematic plan throughout a season in the NFL to rest a quarterback in the way that you are describing. That's probably true. Do you think this is the? Do you think now is? The I'm trying time? to think back, like when Pey- Peyton on Denver a couple years ago. Would they bring in Osweiler? I mean, it was kind of weird because he he no, missed games and stuff like that. No, no, so, he yeah, missed yeah. games, yeah. and then and then you remember there was a game or two where Peyton could have played. They waited a few weeks to bring him back, even though he probably mm-hmm. could have played a little bit sooner. But that's I don't, probably I, the closest thing to what you're talking about. I think this would be a fascinating thing if yeah. this were to happen this year. And of course, Belichick won't let us know. Why would anybody I, I think strategy the, I let think us the know the only this? thing that prevents it is I'm, I'm envisioning this scenario where the Patriots are just completely clobbering people in the first half. That's probably not going to happen all that much, you know, especially against good competition. You know, I, I mean, if there's any chance of the Patriots not winning at halftime, I think Brady is going to stay in the game. So it's really kind of a, a relatively isolated kind of case here. And if they are kind of going for, like, you know, I mean, if, if they're at like 12-0, and 0, Brady's still going to be playing all those games. Oh well, there's for sure. They, yeah. You know, they, you know, they still have. They, they would love to have a perfect season. Let me ask you a question now. Going also now switching back to tennis. How would you explain to our listeners out there where you know we wrote an article once about people that seem to have what I'll call double humped curves. You know, people that have peak performance. Yeah. Get work. So how do you explain? And I don't think either one of us think there's never been any allegation of any type of illegal substance use with Federer or Nadal. Yeah. How do you explain a guy who didn't win a major? For four and a half years, now at age 35, he didn't play for six months. Maybe we can make a rest argument, training argument, but he's won two majors this year, and he's got to be the favorite at the U.S. Open. So how do you, from a statistical perspective, how do we reconcile this kind of late resurgence? Or it could be, back to what we talked about with, um, with Dan, Maybe the competition's just no good. Yeah, I mean, maybe the competition's part of it, though I think the competition is pretty good. Um, I think it's more just kind of, maybe it took Federer a couple years to sort of realize, hey, I can't keep, I actually have to make a regime change. I can't just kind of keep going. I'm not going to keep winning at this elite level if I just behave like I'm a 22-year-old. You know, so maybe that he needed an adjustment time to kind of change something about his training or just the realization that hey if i i need to just kind of focus on the majors i can't just play every tournament anymore these types of things maybe that that helps to explain it does it also i mean how much has not that 17 majors is a bad number but how much has these has this last year Change. I mean, I've always thought Federer is the greatest player I've ever saw. Even though Nadal had a twenty-three and eleven record against him going into this year, um, how much does well? How much did Tom? Let's do it one at a time. How much did Tom Brady winning this last Super Bowl change in your mind 
his standing in the pantheon of great quarterbacks, especially given the way the game went? Um, it did not change in my, my my mind was already before the game started. He's the greatest quarterback of all time. But I mean, you're talking to a Patriots fan, so I mean, like, but I'm now, currently. Biased. Is there any dispute about no, it? I mean, I mean, who, who can reasonably make an argument now? I mean, especially the way, especially the fact that they won that game and the way they won that game with him throwing for like 466 yards or whatever it is. I mean, who you you would you I I, I hope in the future. Whatever, like Jets fans or whatever, whoever, whoever would try and mount an argument against Brady gets laughed out of the room. Well, at let's, this now, point. let's now go to tennis. Yeah, is there any argument in your mind now? Federer, let's let me just say the stats. He's got nineteen majors. Nadal has fifteen. Yeah, nineteen is bigger than fifteen. But Nadal is something like twenty-three and fourteen against Federer. Yeah. So one could make an argument, right, that Nadal is the better player. We, one could. I, I, I prefer Federer, not just because of the 19 versus 15, but because he seems to, you know, kind of win across a lot more surfaces. I mean, Nadal is just so focused on the French Open. I mean, if you ask me who's the greatest clay player oh, of all time. I, there's no discussion. There's no discussion, Ten right? French. Ten's a big number. Ten's a big number. But what, that's that's got- two-thirds of the majors that Nadal has won. That is correct. So, you know, I mean, unless clay is in your mind the way tennis should be played— I think you got to lean Federer on that. You know what's really fascinating about Federer? People don't remember this. Do you know how many French Opens Federer has won? Like two? One. One, okay. And the one year he won was the year this semi-unknown Robin Soderling defeated Nadal in, like, the third round. Yeah. Otherwise, Federer would have zero. He wouldn't yeah. even have the career Grand Slam. And then it would be interesting yeah. how people would, would perceive his career. Yeah. He'd have 18 majors... But not the French. Yeah. And the one year he won was, again, the year that that Nadal was yeah. knocked no, out. No, I mean, that is an, a very interesting hypothetical world. I, I kind of wonder what the argument would be. Well, um, this has been four quarters now of Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank uh, Patty Hall for producing us today. I'd like to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, uh, Danielle Bruno. I'd like to thank our intern, Zach Drapkin, for providing us real-time stats during the, uh, during the show today. Of course, I want to thank my uh, co-host this morning, uh, Shane Jensen. Uh, we're here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 Eastern, throughout the week. Um, lots of interesting sports. Uh, the one sport I'll say just for our last few seconds, I hope everybody watches for a big change. You know, Everybody knows I'm a hot dog eating guy. We also have the World Series of Poker going on right now. And for the first time for our listeners, live Thursday at 9, Friday at 9, Saturday at 9 p.m. on ESPN and ESPN2, people can watch the World Series of Poker, one of the great sporting events of all time. So between now and next Wednesday, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your business. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.